0: Here at at White Flag Calvary, we study the Bible expositionally, which means we go verse by verse through the Bible, and we teach what is presented to us. We teach what the Lord is doing, you know, what the Lord brings us to. So um, it's a really neat opportunity when you're doing that to cover things that maybe don't commonly get covered. And so I'm, I'm very excited for our study today. Today, our Bible study is called Meet Me at the Altar. Meet me at the altar. So let's go ahead and pray, because we can't understand anything in the Bible unless we pray and ask his spirit to teach us. So let's do that first. Father, we come to you, and we thank you so much for what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Uh, if if, If you didn't die, Jesus, there's no way we could pray and be heard. If you didn't cover our sins, there's no way we could be accepted in the beloved like we are. There's no way that we could be your children just busting into the throne room of heaven and saying, Father, that would be inappropriate if we were not bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. We come and we ask now that the Spirit would be sent down to us like rain. And Father, that you would teach us from your word. You gave us this word. We commit a time set aside each week to study your word Lord God, and to have you be our leader, you speak into our lives. Lord, I pray this is not the words of men that we hear today, that it's not the word of a denomination or a church, but God, it's the father of of the whole universe, the father who has created all would speak directly into our lives. That's what we ask for. And we ask in faith, Lord, believing, trusting that you will be you will will do according to your word and according to your promises. Lord, we lift up everyone in here in the hearts, Lord, that that maybe there's some hearts that are hurting. Maybe there's some hearts that have been through some difficult times and don't understand, maybe questions, maybe doubts, Lord. And I pray, God, that you in your love would draw us to you. Jesus, you said if you'd be lifted up that you would draw all men to yourself. And Lord, the church could be unattractive to some in here. But Jesus, you, there is nothing unattractive in you. You are so full of love. You're so full of patience. And you have so much provision available for us. So we thank you, God. We, we ask these things in Jesus' name because we know it's according to your will. And so we expect you to respond to us and to hear us and to work powerfully in our midst today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we have met Abram. As we've been going through the book of Genesis, we have gone through Noah and his whole boat situation and the flood. And we've we've seen Cain before that and his, his rebellion against God. And then after Noah, we had Nimrod and his rebellious kingdom. And then we get to Abram. So it hasn't been a long time. It's maybe been three or four hundred years since the flood has happened. So the world is been getting repopulated. There's, there's a few, maybe a couple million, few million people in the world right now. And Abram has journeyed. We started the journey from Ur of the Chaldees and he's going up over the, mess, the fertile crescent. And he's going down into the promised land. Why? Because God called him. God chose him. No reason at all. God just said, Abram, hey, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you to be the person that I, I minister to the whole world or I speak my word to the whole world through. And Abraham's just like, are you serious, me? I was worshiping the moon five minutes ago with my brothers in Ur of the Chaldees on the big ziggurat. So why would you choose me? And God's like, I just love you. And God said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you. And we looked at last week, and it's a really good study. If you you would go back, it's real foundational for why Abraham has this relationship with God. God just made all these promises to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you kids. Abraham's 75 years old. His wife hasn't had any kids. She's barren. But he's like, I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to send the Messiah through you. I'm going to save all of the humans that believe through someone that comes from your body. That's how much I love you, Abraham. And his name's Abram now. It's going to change to Abraham. We'll get to that in just a little while. So Abraham, he's just blown away by God's love. And that's where we're at today. We get to Genesis chapter 12. We left off in verse 7, so that's where we pick up today. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. So Abraham has now entered into the promised land. He entered down, he, he went through the northern part of Israel where Dan is, and he went down, and he went down through Shechem, and, uh, and now he, he gets to a place, and the Lord appears to him. And he says, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. So once Abraham gets to the promised land, God appears to him again. And I don't know how that it was, if he appeared to him in a, you know, you know, vision, or if he actually appeared to him like a person, like Jesus showing up in a Christophany, or maybe a burning bush. I don't know. He's got all kinds of creative ways that he can appear. But he appears to Abraham and he simply reminds Abraham of the promises that were already made to him. So Abraham's made some progress going into the land. He's, come, he's, he's made some journeys. He's, he's walked a few hundred miles on this journey. And he simply is reminding him to go back to the promises, to remember the word that was spoken to you, Abraham. The word, remember the word is so important To just remember that. Because this life is not primarily about learning new truths. The gospel is so simple that a child can understand. In fact, we are teaching your children right now the gospel. Whether they're three years old, two years old, four years old, five years old, we are teaching them the gospel. Why? Because it's so simple that they can understand it. But yet, it's so deep that we can invest our entire lives and every moment of our life considering it, the, the implications of it, the depth of it, and you'll never come to a bottom. You'll never come to an end. There's a really neat illustration in the book of Ezekiel about this, and he says he, when he, he sees a vision of heaven, and, and he says that, that it's like a river, and, and you could go just a little ways into the river and it'd just be up to your ankles. And you could swim out a little bit more and it'd be up to your kneecaps. And you go a little bit further and it says it's waters to swim in. It just keeps getting deeper and deeper and that's such a great illustration for us of our relationship with God. Because this, this life isn't about learning new doctrines, but rather going deeper with the promises already revealed. Going deeper with the truths you've already heard. Experiencing more fully the simple love and grace of God. Having a deeper experience with the person of Jesus Christ. I, 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 I'm able to spend a lot of time in the Word due to my profession. I'm a pastor. So I spend a lot of time. And you would be amazed. I mean, I can get in there and i have be studying a doctrine. And, and it's like I go deep and deep and deep. And then I come out on the other side. And it's always like, so you love me. All right. All of that, I, I just struggle and I dig and then it comes back around and, and what, what really makes a difference to me is when it's just the simple truth that comes back and speaks into my heart and I realize that there's a little part of my heart that didn't believe. You see, I, my heart is, is very complex and yours is too and we're like that guy who said, Jesus, I do believe but help my unbelief, right? We don't even know where the parts are that don't believe, but they're in there and God sees it. And so we pray for something. Maybe we're praying desperately for someone to get saved. Maybe we're praying because our heart is just broken over some issue and we come to the Lord in faith and we're like, God, I believe. And you say anything I ask for in belief, you'll give me as your son. So why am I not seeing this happen right now? And that's where we have to just remember that there's a part of your heart that doesn't believe yet. And it's not your job to fix that. It's not my job to seek that out. It's, we, we have a husbandman, that I means someone who tends our vine. And he is caring for our heart and he is, he is working in our heart those areas that we don't even see to where we come to the beliefs. You see, he's the one that's actually the patient one. When we when we think we're waiting for God to give me the answer, God, why haven't you answered me? In reality, it's Him saying, Oh, I'm just waiting for your heart to be ripe for the answer to be it for you to be able to handle the answer that I give you. Because it's gonna be so good, but you've got to believe. You have to believe fully in all the parts, and so we wait, and that's why we continue in prayer. That's why we endure in prayer when when someone is not getting saved and we don't know why, and oh, they're going to go to hell, but I'm going to keep praying for them. It's not that we're trying to sway God's heart. It's that we're letting our heart get to the place where we fully believe. That's what the Lord has for us. He wants us to go deeper in the simple truths that he's already revealed. Not like the Gnostics. You know, as the church, when the church was really young, there arose a sect of people called the Gnostics, and they were always teaching and always searching for a deeper knowledge, saying, there's some truth you got to know that's different. It's not just that Jesus loves you and he died for you on the cross. No, no, no. That's just the beginning. If you really, really dig in there, there's this secret knowledge that you got to know. And the church fought against them for hundreds of years and won eventually i mean it's uh, you, there's still gnostic philosophy out there right now but the church was always having to re- resist that movement saying no it is not that it is sim- simple the gospel simple and that's why god he brings abram into the land and he just reminds him hey remember what i've already promised you remember that i'm the one doing this because i bet abraham rolled up into the land like he owned the place And he's looking around, there's all these weird people living there, and he's thinking in his mind, I own this. God has given this to me. And so I bet Abraham's heart, though, he's like, wait a second. There's a lot more of them than there are of me. And my couple kids, well, I didn't even have any kids right now, my nephew. So I bet there was doubt in his heart. But God, he's so loving, he's so gracious. He comes to Abraham and he says, hey, so now you're here, now you see how difficult it's going to be. But I want you to know, I'm going to do it. Just believe the simple promises. Abraham technically never owns anything in the promised land through his whole life except for his burial plot where his bones are buried. That's the only place we'll ever see him actually own. But the promise of God is enough for Abraham to walk around like he owns the place. He's living according to promises. And that's exactly how God is calling us to live. Not according to how good you can do, your great efforts, your performance according to standards. No, he calls us to live according to promises and not our promises. How many of you have ever prayed and said, God, I promise I'll never do that again. Amen. I have done that And I'm telling you, it was a lie to God. It was a lie. We don't have to lie. God wants truth in our inward parts, which means I'm not going to promise God that I'll never do that again because I'm probably going to fail, probably worse. But in Christ, man, he makes us the promises. That's the gospel is he offers to us. He gives to us. Literally, it requires nothing from us except to believe. So Abram was a he's living according to promise, and he's living with his family in mind. You know his, his wife is with him, and he's leading her, his nephew, and all the people that are with him. You know he's believing God's call and plan for his family. So we see that there, and it says here that when God reiterated this promise that he builds an altar to the Lord, he builds an altar to the Lord. Now what's interesting is that God never asked Abram to build an altar, did he? You didn't hear God say, now that you have tasted and seen of my grace, get to work building me an altar. Never. We can see clearly that their relationship is already based on love and trust. That's how God wanted it to be based. God has never intended your life to be one of fear with him. We're supposed to have a fear of the Lord, but he doesn't want us to relate to him in fear. It's very interesting. It's very complex. So Abraham, he loves the Lord. God is repeatedly demonstrating his love to Abraham, just repeating himself, I love you, Abraham. I've done this for you. I'm going to do this for you. His provision for Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to provide for you children. I'm going to do this. His intention to bless and give to Abraham just seems to never be ending. He's just constantly giving to Abraham. It's almost like God is too concerned with loving Abraham to have any time to require anything of him. I'll repeat that. It's almost as God is too concerned with loving Abraham to have time to spend time requiring anything from him. See God knows and God believes in the power of his own love. He knows that Abraham's going to respond. In Psalm 23, verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the end of that that great shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. And David, he's just talking about grace, and he's talking about all that God does for him as his good shepherd, even as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. David, he's extolling all of Jesus' attributes here in Psalm 23. And he says well, the greatest thing, the pinnacle of this psalm is that goodness and mercy are going to follow me. But that word follow is awesome in Hebrew because it literally means to chase around, to chase after. So God is so concerned with blessing us, with blessing you, that he's literally running around after you, throwing blessings on you, trying to do dodgeball in your head, right? With blessings. That's how much he loves you, David says. Goodness and mercy will follow me, gonna pursue me all the days of my life. I'll try to get away and my good shepherd will say, get back here, and a big blessing in my face. That's how it works with God. And you might be thinking, I I haven't experienced that. It seems like every time I get off track, I get a curse dodgeball, the red ones. I love dodgeball. When I was a junior high youth pastor, that was the only event I did because I liked hitting the kids. When you hit a junior higher with a dodgeball, they just fly. It's fun. Well, you might be thinking, I, didn't, I never really experienced that. When I get off track, it's, it's like a curse comes into my life. And that's the law. The law does bring a curse when disobedience happens. And it's when we, when we tire of that, when we get tired of running around, what, gets, what happens when you get tired? You get thirsty. Jesus says, if any man thirsts, if any man's tired of the red dodgeballs in the face... How about some blessing balls right coming after you? How about it? How about you? when you're tired and thirsty, you come to me and I will give you freely of my water. Just blessing. You have the law and grace, two different truths. And they work together so perfectly. The law chases you around and makes you tired. You get tired, you get thirsty. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, then just come to me. That's how the law works as a tutor to drive us to Christ. So why is goodness and mercy going to follow me all the days of my life? Because he's my shepherd. Well, how did he become my shepherd? Because I believe. I've entered into this sheep-shepherd relationship because I believe. When he said, I'll be your shepherd, I said, okay, that's all I did. And now goodness and mercy pursues me. I I read things like this. This is in the Old Testament. And I get so frustrated, and you've probably seen it in our our studies of when people say the Old Testament God is a God and mean and vengeful. And I even wrote in here, mean and vengeful God, my patootie. And I'm sorry for using that word. But you just got to say it sometimes. From what I see in the Bible, from what we've seen as we've been going through Genesis, and I think you'd agree with me, God is truthfully the most loving, patient, thoughtful, kind, merciful, and wonderful person that I have ever studied or considered. He is constantly pouring out love. And the world is constantly rejecting him. But we see this guy, Abram. He's just taking it. He's like, okay, i'm on i'm on board and it's awesome It's such a blessing for me to see god's character like this his un he's unfailing in his loving attributes he's never changing in his incredible kindness towards undeserving sinners he just loves with no thought of himself what an example for us what a what a, a god to worship you know we come in here and we sing songs of worship and it just it overflows my heart to sing these songs and raise my head, hands in my head to him. Just, He's so good. He's so loving. And again, you might be thinking, wait a second. I don't feel that way. What I see is the Ten Commandments. And I see the law speaking to me a standard, a difficult way. We'll, we'll get into that in one second. Look at what this unbelievable love in Abram's life produces. It says, Abram built an altar to the Lord. What this love, what this grace produces in Abraham's life is a response. A response. Many people are concerned in the church today that if you show people too much grace, if you're too loving to people, they're going to just take advantage of it and they're going to become worse sinners. But what we see in the Bible is that God uses the power of grace to transform people from the inside. He showers them with love and kindness, and then he lets his grace take root on the inside, and it produces a spiritual fruit of a righteous life, or a life that looks how it should. And that's the way God works. We know that it's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance. A preacher cannot stand up and say, repent, because the rules say so. Repent, because you feel bad. No, he has to show them how much love God has for that person, for the sinner. And when the law does its work and its job to convict that sinner of their sin, then God's love can be preached and they can accept it and say, okay, I'm guilty, but you wipe me clean. You wash me clean. You give me everything. And it's a free response. A life is then turned in response to God and to follow his ways. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty freeing. The Ten Commandments were written, as we know, on external slabs of cold, hard stone. You guys have all seen Charlton Heston standing up there with his big beard. Love that guy. He stands up there with those big rocks written with the Ten Commandments, those ten rules for following God, for being accepted in God's sight. And the work of the Ten Commandments is the exact same in our lives and in our hearts. It's cold. It's hard. It's unrelenting. And it just shouts demands that are immovable. Do this. But I didn't do it. I don't care. Do it. That's what the the law speaks into our heart. And we have to hear it. We all have to hear the law. Even though it's basically saying, you suck. You're terrible. You're awful. We have to hear that because we all fall short of the glory of God. But it's when a sinner hears that and they say, I agree. I agree. I don't measure up to this cold, hard, immovable standard. That's when the warmth And the grace of God can be preached into a heart, and the heart can be changed, melted, and a response can truly come. That's how it works. Grace works by giving us a new heart. Not that cold, hard heart with just a list of rules inside. I got to do this, and when I don't, my heart breaks a little bit more. No, He gives us a new heart. He's not putting a new standard over you saying, here's another thing for you to accomplish. No, grace works a different way. And in Ezekiel 36, in the Old Testament, it tells us how it works. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, I will give you a new heart God says, prophesying of the new covenant that we now live in of grace. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So question, could you give yourself a new heart? Many sinners, they, they look at the standards. They look at the rules and they know they fall short. And so they say, oh, I wish I could do something about my heart. I wish I could... Give myself a new heart. And they live their life and they die in their sin because they never just asked God for his work, his work of giving them a new heart. They never asked. God is the one that does the work in grace. His promises, we believe. He works. We rest. He changes our hearts. We trust his loving surgical hand working inside our hearts. So freeing. A heart that has a deep connection with the law is just like the law. It's stone. Unless you think that I think we need to think less of the law, I don't. I think, in general, we think too little of the law. We need to exalt the law and let it have its word. It's when people think that they can comma almost measure up to the law, that's when they get in trouble because then they don't see their need, their absolute desperate need for a savior. When you see the law for what it actually says, which is be perfect, all of us measure short of it. And we recognize then our great need for the love and salvation of Jesus Christ. So you keep the law or you get punished. Life is a difficult war that rewards only the one who tries the hardest or actually is perfect. That's the ministry of the law. That's what the law tells us. That's what studying the law gives you. But the heart that God promises us in grace is a heart of flesh, which is soft. It's full of life. It's moldable, willing and desiring to feel love, to respond to the soft touch of love with its own love and kind. And that's what we're seeing with Abram. That's what we're seeing developed in Abraham's heart. Is that God is not laying on him a trip. He is developing an intense relationship of love. In, Coloss- in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, it says, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. The ministry now that we have in the church, what what is going on in the church ever since Jesus came, is a powerful, spiritual, living work done on the heart. It's not about producing people who follow a list of outside rules. That is not what the church is here for. It's not what our church is here for. It's not what any church should be here for. Now, there's some that have fallen and and are not doing that very well right now. But what, the church, what Paul says, says when we're doing work, when, when Christ is using us to minister to you, he says it's a, it's a work in the heart. It's not us giving you rules. It's us making you godly, Christ-like. Such a difference between the flesh and the spirit, between the law and grace. So relating this back to Abraham, God has been ministering to his heart, spiritually writing a love letter on the soft tablets of Abraham's new heart. A letter that read of his love. A letter that spoke of his promises. A letter of his word, of his grace. God is to Abraham a living God. He's not a dead stone idol like his family worshipped in Ur just months before. Abraham knew what that was like. But he's now being led by a living, speaking, promising, loving God. Why? Because he believes. Again, Abraham believes. Are you being led? When you look at your life, is there a back and forth in your time with God, in your relationship with God? Do you hear his direction in your life? Or is your relationship with God just like a stone idol like you could basically have a relationship with a rock and it would be just as productive that is not what god intends for your life god intends to be what he is to abram which is a living soft relationship oriented god but let's now turn our attention to the response that abraham gives it's much less important But we need to look at it. It's always more important to keep our eyes fixed on what God has done for us. But let's turn our attention now and see that Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. A place where he would burn an animal as a sacrifice to God. David Guzak explains what an altar is or what an altar was. Basically four things that an altar was. It was a place to meet with God a place to meet with God. It was an, to offer a sacrifice for sin. Number three, it was to show submission to God. And number four, it was just to worship God. Well, how does this altar work for us today? How do we build an altar in response to the Lord's love and grace today? First question would be, where is the altar? The kids right now are building an altar out of boxes just because that's this lesson at their level and they're having a fun time i'm sure i hear them yelling and screaming but where would we go to meet with god to worship god to see a sacrifice for sins and and uh, um, submit to god in hebrews chapter 13 verse 10 it says we have an altar we have an altar from which Those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Basically, those who came before Jesus, they don't even have any idea what you and I get. What we have is so much better than what they have. And you might have been thinking as you're thinking about Abraham building an altar and and meeting with God, man, that'd be pretty cool to have be build this little thing and do some stuff, and, and all of a sudden God appears and meets with you. That'd be kind of cool. But the author of Hebrews says we have an altar that they don't even have a right to eat at. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Where is the altar for you and me? It is at Jesus. With Jesus. We experience it by abiding in Jesus. That is where our response to God's loving kindness takes place. It's the only place it can take place. It's the place of his choosing. It's crazy. He was crucified for us. And we have to go back to that crucifixion to have that relationship with him. It's like a plant. If you want to graft in a branch to a plant, you have to cut the plants just as Jesus was crucified. He was cut. But also, the, the branch has to be cut in a like manner so that they could be put together. And as you tie them together and you keep them abiding, you keep them together, they will eventually grow through. And the life of the plant will grow through the branch and they will become one. And that's how it works with us. Jesus desires to be one with us. He desires to be connected. He desires us to have an altar, but he doesn't want us to have to build an altar here, and then when we move over to Ai, build an altar over here, and then when we move down to Egypt, we'll see Abraham build all kinds of altars. But for us, God's God's like, no, I want to eliminate all that. I'm going to make the, the place just at Jesus at the cross, and you can go there by faith every day. And it says here that this meeting place with God is outside the camp in Hebrews. It causes, it causes reproach, he said. He had to bear reproach. We have no pride in re, in when, when we have to require and, and need and obtain everything, absolutely everything for our spiritual life in just his presence. That's where everything for us comes from. It's humbling. And that's why humility is required to journey to where this altar of relationship is, where we receive more and more of his grace That's why he says you have to bear reproach. That's why he says he he was outside the, the camp because you have to humble yourself. It's embarrassing to say, I don't have anything spiritually good inside me at all. I have to go to Jesus every day and abide in him so that his life can then flow through to me. The second question was, what kind of sacrifice is at this altar? What is the sacrifice for sin? If that's the second purpose of an altar, what is it for us? And Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus himself is the sacrifice that pleases God, right? And our meeting with God, it's only his sacrifice that causes the Father to be pleased, Nothing we bring can smell as sweet. We can add nothing to the greatest work ever done. We can only receive the benefits of his gracious and loving death on the cross. We can only come to the fire already burning with his sacrifice and meet with God as if it was our own. That's crazy. He's the sacrifice. Third question, how do we show then submission? Surrender. Response, wave the white flag. How do we show that his love has gripped our hearts and that we believe and agree with his work? Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We are allowed to serve God with our lives when we meet with him under these conditions. What conditions if you believe that Jesus was the sacrifice? If you believe that Jesus is everything to you, you're allowed then to serve God. Maybe your heart's desire is to serve God. And I say, what do you spend your time on? Is there a meeting with Jesus? Is there an abiding with Jesus every moment of the day? Good, then you'll see him use you. So many want to serve God, but they desire to do it in their own conditions. Look what I can do. Look at my abilities or talents. I mean, I'm an awesome worship leader, so I should be serving God leading worship. That's just an example. Look at my willingness. Look at my faithfulness. And they put all their own conditions on serving God when Paul says in Romans 12:1, if you want to serve God, you have to do it under his conditions. It's just believing in what he does. It's just believing in what he did at the cross. And you abide there. You let that life flow through you, and then you'll serve me. Our response rather should be, here is my weakness. Here is nothing but a heart that you have loved and a body that you have cleansed. And I lay down my whole being in surrender to my Father. All I am is yours. And because of the sacrifice that's already burning, Jesus on the cross, this somehow becomes a holy and acceptable and a reasonable act of surrender. It's just mind-blowing how it works. A whole life and nothing else is what Abram responded to God with. And it's what I am led by the Spirit to yield to my Father each day. It's all a work of His grace, free love given to us, free forgiveness, free promises, the response to grace by people is simply more than any law could ever hope to secure. The reason why I talk about grace every Sunday, and you might be sick of it, and if you are, tough. Go, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking about it because what grace secures in people is love and loving service and acceptance and growth. I believe it with all my heart. We must preach grace. We must share the free love of God with this world. They are loved and they don't even know it. God has done so much for them and they don't know. How can they hear without a preacher, Paul says. And my whole life given over to this calling is far too small for God, but he can still use it somehow. It can still be a living sacrifice for him. He can open doors. He can give me boldness. He'll respond to my prayers and meet as I meet with him at his altar and, and we'll see greater works. It's awesome. So number four, the last thing, worship at the altar. How does that happen? Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What can we say at the altar? When we abide in Christ, when we remember his work of sacrifice and love for us, we say, thank you. We declare all the good that he has done. Where is there any room for boasting? How could we possibly say anything about our own deserving or our own efforts when we're in the presence of his glorious altar? His altar, where he's dying on the cross. Who can say, yeah, I deserve that. Never. No, he gets all our praise. He gets the fruit of our lips. We respond to his unconditional love by singing and shouting the praise of that very love. Not because the law says we have to, but because our lips cannot hold back the exploding gratitude of response from our new hearts of flesh that he's put inside us. That's what happens when you meet with God at the altar. So Abram builds this altar to the Lord. And it says he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Abraham, again, owned this whole land, yet he lived, it says, in a tent. He never built a house. He was a pilgrim. He he wasn't a drifter. A drifter has no purpose, no destination. A pilgrim has a destination. And Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 2.11, that we are pilgrims too. Uh, According, it says, But, beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The health of your soul, Peter says, is dependent on understanding that you're living a life as a pilgrim. When we let our soul get comfortable and thrilled with the things of this world, we're just looking down the barrel of a gun and hoping nothing happens. Abram, he moved around. He built an altar at his new place (coughs) because he's purposeful about his relationship with God. He loves his time of meeting with Jesus, and he isn't just aimless. No matter where he's going, he's, he's there for God. He's there with God. His relationship with God is giving him a purpose. Do you just feel lost sometimes? Just feel aimless? Go back to the altar and you'll find your purpose there. You'll find it. I don't know what, is it, what it will be, but you'll find it there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 8 through 10 gives us some real good insights to the spot. And we're almost done. I know we're, we're uh, really diving into some deep stuff today. But we have to see this because this is like a gold nugget to your soul. So are you Ready? Okay, good. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, we have some commentary on this portion, these two verses in Genesis. It says, by faith Abraham Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he would receive as an inheritance. And by faith he went out, not knowing where he was going, and by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. We just read that. With Isaac and Jacob, we haven't heard about them yet, but we will. Spoiler alert. The heirs of, with him of the same promise. For he waited, and he gives us here a commentary, a reason why Abraham did this. He said, for he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These all died in faith. If you could skip down to verse 13, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things, say what? Say that I'm just a pilgrim? They declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham lived in tents for this reason, the Bible says. Because he was waiting for the city. The way, excuse me, they are waiting for heaven and heaven is being prepared for them, the people of God here. Why is heaven called a city? Because it's a place of fellowship where men can meet with one another. He had seen what men can do with their cities, Abraham had. See, he came from the city of Ur with its giant ziggurat, moon-worshipping, idolatry people. He'd seen that. And he saw the coldness. He saw the emptiness in their religion. Then as he was journeying, he walked right by the Tower of Babel right by Babel, and he observed it, and I bet he just saw it, and he, you know, now it's crumbling, because it had been a few hundred years, and why was it crumbling? Because people had left. No one was there working to maintain the incredible amount of maintenance and work required to keep up that form of religion. Work, work, work. So, Abraham had seen what Ur does with the emptiness, and then he'd seen Babel with its work. And he had tired of all that men had to offer. He was willing to wait for a city that actually had foundations, it says, meaning that that is founded on works that will not fail, or the work of Jesus and not men. He was willing, he was, excuse me, waiting for a city who had a builder and a maker, it said unlike the people who designed I-25 and our city. The new heaven will be perfectly designed in every way. The new covenant shows the character of that city. It's amazing. Or maybe you could say the city illustrates the beauty of the new covenant. A well-designed system where God provides everything and his children receive all that they could desire or need through the person and life and work of Jesus Christ. It's a great system. It's the gospel. It's so much better than trying to prove yourself or trying to get to heaven on your own. Look at Abraham's progression and take it to heart. Number one, he, he left when he was called away. From the world he knew. The world had nothing for him anymore. Like the old song sings, I am on the Lord's side, my old companions fare thee well, I cannot go with you to hell. Number two, he lived with those who would believe the promises too. It said he lived with Abraham, or excuse me, with Isaac and Jacob, who would be heirs with him of the same promise. So he leaves the world and all their influences and he comes to church. He starts living at church. It's exactly what the Lord might be putting on your heart. Abide with the people of God. Don't stay away from church. Come and be encouraged by the people who are on the same journey to that same holy city, and are living in the same tents right now, holy tents where the rain drips in on them. All of us are here. We're all in the same boat. And we can all tell the stories together and encourage each other. Number three, he considered himself to be a citizen of a heavenly city. And that was his homeland. Even though he had never been there. By believing in promises, it says he had assurance. It says, but having seen them afar off, he was assured of them. And for us, by embracing and confessing these promises, God is not ashamed to be called Abraham's God, and he's not ashamed to be called our God. Even though Abraham had done nothing great, and even though I have done literally nothing awesome, God still is not ashamed to be called my God. I would be ashamed to be my God, but I don't yet fully understand how much Jesus has changed my identity. It's awesome if he wanted to go back another thing about Abraham if he wanted to go back to the land before it says he could have but God has a built-in defense from keeping that from happening you know what that is grace love through grace he changed Abraham's heart so that now Abraham desires only a better or a heavenly country it said in Hebrews a better country is all that he desires see instead of god saying you got to do this and if you do all those things you lose your salvation instead of him doing that instead of him putting any restrictions at all on it he said just receive salvation and then he has a built-in defense for all of that by saying and it's free and i love you so why would you want to get off the boat You see that grace not only arrests our heart from God, for God, but it keeps it there as well. We are not only justified by his undeserving gift of grace, but we are also changed and sanctified and kept by the exact same gift of grace. If we're to ever go back, we go back to hell. Why would we do that? If you've received the grace of God, you know you wouldn't. You know that your heart has been arrested for him. And that you're not going back. But maybe, I don't, I don't know if all of us are there. I don't know if every single one of us has said, I believe. And I want to be completely right in God's presence. So if you guys would all close your eyes and let's all actually stand up. And we're going to come before God. We're going to meet with God at his altar right now. We're going to sing a song. But, but it's very, very important that everyone in here knows That the offer of grace is held out to them. That the law screams at you, demands, and says, you must follow my rules perfectly or you're going to hell. There is no other place for you. That is what the law says. And if you have any of them, even the smallest bit inside you, the smallest grain of mustard seed inside you that believes that you are guilty before God, then take the oceans of grace by faith. Then the gospel of grace can be preached to you. You can receive it. Only the person, though, that admits their need can receive it. No one else. So let's all close our eyes. Father, we come to you, and we we meet with you at this altar of the cross of Jesus Christ, where you made such a great sacrifice for all the sins of the world, even mine. And we love that, Lord. We come to you and you alone because no one else died on the cross. Only you did, Jesus. No one else could, could forgive me, only the one I've wronged, which is you, God. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, move in hearts right now to believe. And if this is your first time believing, then you can just pray and say, God, I need you. God, I believe in what you did on the cross for me. And I accept it in my whole life. I am now right before God, and I, I pray you'd help me to love you. And I pray you'd help me to grow in understanding the simple truths of how much you love me. And if I can, I can confidently say that if you have prayed that prayer, that today you are saved and you will never be unsaved that you are right before God. And I would welcome you into the kingdom of God. And, and I would throw a party for you to say that your sins have been washed away. And I might not know that about you, and it might be real personal inside you, but I would encourage you to tell someone. And I would encourage you to spend every moment that you have devouring the word of God but I also know that the Bible says that the angels do throw a party for each person who believes. That the angels are rejoicing before God and praising him and they're still blown out of the water that he even saves wretched sinners like us. But he's so good, he's so loving. So God, we pray that all the things said today would be from your spirit and would be your power in our lives and God, that you would lead us like that church in China. God, we desire to be only dependent on your spirit for when we come and when we go. God, we we pray you take us out here and, and, and encourage us to love one another. In your name we pray, amen.